Open the precious word of God, please, to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. For those joining by way of a recording, we have looked at Hebrews chapter 7, the last six verses, verses 23 through 28, about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning already. As I said then, it's too bad we don't appreciate a priest. I hope that we do by reading the Old Testament enough to realize how important Aaron and his successors were in that form of religion. John chapter 17. Let's remember a few things about John 17. It is a unique chapter in the Bible. It is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke in that we have recorded for us at length a prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ to his Father about the apostles primarily and about us, those that would believe on him through their word secondarily. We accept the fact without further elaboration this morning that Jesus Christ is our priest. He is the one that intercedes with God for us. But how does he do it? What does he say? What is the content that is in John 17? Let us remember a few things about this prayer. This is the babe born king of the Jews that is praying. This is the king of kings praying. This is the Lord of lords praying. This is the prince of the kings of the earth praying. This is the conquering word on his white horse praying. This is the one coming with mighty angels and flaming fire in a day not far away praying. He shall destroy Antichrist with the brightness of his coming. He shall throw all into the burning flame and present us to God. He died by creative design by Almighty God for your salvation. His glorious relationship with God his Father is obvious and tender in this passage. His commitment to his pitiful men and people is also clear in this prayer. Fall before this great king and fall before this great priest and know he is committed to you. Verse 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, And thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. And they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Amen Amen and amen. Amen. To help us understand this prayer a little better, there is divisions. The simplest division is to see at verse 20 that it shifts to us. And so if we start at the back end of this prayer, verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, that is, these, the eleven, standing with him in the road on the way to Bethany, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So from that point, we have believers, including us, brought in alongside the apostles. 
When we come to the end of verse 5, he is through praying for himself, and he takes up praying for his apostles. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. It's the first five verses that he's praying for himself. Jesus prayed for himself in verse 1 for reciprocal glory. God glorify me, I'll glorify you. If you'll enable me for the cross, I'll give you all the glory that you deserve as my God and Father in heaven. Then in verses 2 and 3, he prayed for himself that he would accomplish the great gift of giving eternal life for men to know the Father. Then in verses 4 and 5, he prayed again for reciprocal glory, but not glory to the cross, glory after the cross. And so we have five verses of Jesus praying for himself. Let's deal with verses 4 and 5, since last Lord's Day we dealt with verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 are wonderful verses in their declaration of the sovereignty of God in the giving of eternal life. There are three gifts in John 17, 2. Do you understand that there are three gifts in John 17, 2? God gave all authority to Jesus Christ to determine the eternal destiny of men. Jesus Christ gave eternal life to those that the Father had given him in election. Three gifts in John 17, 2. How many offers are there in John 17, 2? How much probability is there in John 17, 2? There's none of either. There's no offers and there's no probability. It is a certainty. And the object of salvation is not to keep you from hell, and it's not to get you to heaven, barely considered, as most people consider it, but for you to know the invisible, infinite, everlasting God, Jehovah, our Father in heaven, and his Son, Jesus Christ, and that he sent his Son on a divine mission to save us. That's what verse 3 tells us. It is the same thing declared in 1 John 5.20. This is life eternal, that they, that elect body that you gave me, those elect persons that you gave me, Father, might know thee, the only true God. Without election and without Jesus giving eternal life, we would never know God, nor would we care that we didn't know him. But he has changed all that by the gift of eternal life. So we come to verse 4. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. I have glorified thee on the earth. Jesus was always about his father's business. At the age of 12, he was glorifying his father on earth. From the age of 12 to 30, he glorified his father on earth by being subject to his parents and keeping the commandment of God that he was to honor his father and his mother. He always did those things that pleased his father. Even though the cross was a very terrifying event, he set his face to go to Jerusalem to endure its death. When it says, I have glorified thee on the earth, God's essential glory is infinite. So how do we give him glory? We can't add anything to him. But we can display his glory. We can speak of his glory. We can show his glory. We can describe his glory. And that brings glory to him, and it glorifies him. We can't add to him, because he's infinitely glorious. But Jesus said, I have glorified thee. Think about it with me. I'm not going to elaborate on some of these points. I have elaborated on them in writing, but I just explained what it means to glorify God and to give glory. Do you know there are psalms that say, give glory to God? Can I really give him glory in the sense of adding to his essential glory? No. We can just declare his glory while we're on earth. And so Jesus had done that. Jesus glorified the glory of, Jesus displayed the glory of God or glorified the glory of God in truth by correcting it from Pharisee corruption. Jesus displayed the glory of God's law by keeping it perfectly in every right way. Jesus displayed the glory of God's power by performing unprecedented miracles. Jesus displayed the glory of God's word by fulfilling many prophecies of himself. Jesus displayed the glory of God's mercy by showing it to friends and enemies. Jesus displayed the glory of God's holiness by condemning Pharisee hypocrisy. 
Jesus displayed the glory of God's judgment by declaring wrath on that generation. Jesus displayed the glory of God's worship by clearing the temple with vengeance. Jesus displayed the glory of God's righteousness by water baptism, though not necessary for him. He told his cousin John the Baptist, you baptize me even though you don't want to, that we might fulfill all righteousness. Jesus constantly glorified all those things about God. While Jesus would yet give God more glory, we see glory here in two ways. I have glorified thee by my life to this point, and I'll glorify thee afterwards as well. I have glorified thee on the earth. Let's go to the next clause. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Jesus had completed many aspects of his work on earth, and the rest he would finish. He had lived a perfect life, obeying God in both words and works, in every respect. I have finished. He had preached, healed, called apostles, prepared them, and commissioned them. He would commission them again, but he had already commissioned them to preach. Of course, his greatest work was yet future when he would die, rise again, ascend into heaven, and sit down at the right hand of God. But he says, I have finished the work. Now, did he finish the work here, or did he finish the work on the cross in John 19.30 when he said, it is finished, or did he finish it later than that? Yes. It's all true when it's Jesus Christ speaking. Because he was so certain and so committed to what he was going to do that he could use the perfect tense, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. The perfect tense is a completed action. He prayed in light of what he would do. Look at verse 11 of this chapter. See if this helps you see this and accept it. John 17, 11, And now I am no more in the world. Really? Yes, really. Because his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, he was so committed to it, and it was so certain of happening that he would speak of it this way, because from these verses forward, he is talking about glory later, not glory to get through the cross, but glory because of the cross. Right. Verse 5, you, you know that that's there, don't you? Should I have read it again? And now, fa O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That didn't take place until after he had ascended up into heaven and was glorified. I have glorified thee on the earth, and Jesus did. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, and he is speaking of his death as a settled accomplishment. Therefore, I am looking for that glory that is waiting for me in heaven, which is in verse 5. Now, does the Bible ever use verbs that way? Does the Bible want us to know, in Romans chapter 4, that when God told Abraham... I have made thee. Notice the have made. That is the perfect tense verb construction, meaning a completed action in the past, still present in the, still true in the present. I have made thee. I have finished. Exactly. Thank you, Lord, for cross references in a King James Bible. Amen. Romans four seventeen. God said, "I have made thee a father of many nations." When he wasn't a father of but one boy named Ishmael. But it says, God is able to call those things which be not as though they were. Amen. He's able to use the perfect tense, which means a past action, for something he will yet do in the future, because with him it is certain. Paul said that God has, predest has foreknown us, predestinated us, called us, justified us, and glorified us in Romans 8, 29 and 30? Does he use the past tense verb glorified? He does. Why? Because God doesn't need to speak the way you do. Because when you say you're going to do something, we don't know if it's going to happen or not. But when God says he's going to do something, it is as good as done. Amen. We use a very similar construction when we say to unfinished work, consider it done. 
Have you ever heard that expression? Consider it done. I am committed to it. I have the means to do it. I will do it. Consider it done. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Jesus did not say or do anything of himself. Everything he said, everything he did, God had told him to say, and God had told him to do. My father worketh hitherto, and I work. The unity of the Godhead and Jesus Christ, his son, is constantly repeated in the Gospel of John. And if you have learned to this point, and with my little reminder right now, that we have heard that over and over and over. My doctrine is not my own. My doctrine is the doctrine of him that sent me. I and my Father are one. That becomes precious when we get into these words that we are about to get into, that the Father and Christ and we are one. Because it is the Godhead committed to us. It is the Godhead with his Son, Jesus Christ, committed to us. We have the full force of heaven and all the personal affection of heaven. God the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and Jesus of Nazareth committed together with one purpose, one goal, perfect unity, embracing us. We're going to see it shortly in verses 6 through 10. Verse 4, you should understand that because he is shifting. In verse 17, glorify thy son. Father, if you'll glorify me, that thy son may also glorify thee. If you'll glorify me, I'll glorify thee. If you'll uphold me, bless me, favor me, help me, strengthen me for the cross, I'll glorify you by everything that happens over the next 24 hours. But then, after describing what those 24 hours were to accomplish, and that is the gift of eternal life in verses 2 and 3, he moves on. I've done it, okay? Let's put that behind us, Lord. I've glorified thee on the earth. I'm going to die. It's as good as done. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. It's as good as done. Now glorify me with that glory that I had before I came to earth. So we have verse 5. He's moving ahead. I I hope you can see that. And now, and now, O Father, that I've put the cross behind me, Because I'm going to do it. It's as good as done. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. God is the Father only of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. He is not the Father of the Word of God. The Word of God is God. The Word of God is the everlasting Father in his divine nature, which is the only nature that the word of God has until the word of God was made flesh. This is the second of six times Jesus identified God as father in this short prayer. You may use the word father more than once when you pray. It doesn't just have to be your opening salutation. When Jesus prayed, he referred six times in this short prayer to God as his father. I have already warned you that I was not going to ruin this prayer by chasing sonship very far. You just have to remember that we've already looked at verse 5 in the introductory sermon that I preached. Jesus did not exist before the world began with God. In his combined dual nature as the God-man. He existed before the world began in his divine nature with God when he was the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Based on what Jesus was going to do in verses 2 through 4, he's asking the Father for some glory in heaven. He has been humiliated on earth. He came as a servant. He was born in the lowliest of situations. He didn't even get women. His mother didn't even get to give birth in a waiting room. His mother gave birth in a stable and laid him in a manger, 
a feeding trough for animals. He was humiliated only for a time. And he knows what's about to happen. He's going to finish the work that God gave him to do and he's going to be exalted. Because the Bible tells us because he humiliated himself and died the death he did on the cross, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus is praying for that in verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This didn't happen that night. This didn't happen the next night. This didn't happen for 43 days. Six weeks in a day. Because he was on earth for 40 days, and he was in the ground three days and three nights. But it did happen. When John next met the Lord, after Jesus ascended up into heaven, when John next met the Lord in Revelation chapter 1, he fell at his feet as dead. He was glorified entirely different than anything John had ever seen before. John knew him intimately. But what a change had taken place. And when we see him in Revelation 19 in the picture God wants us to see of him, he is sitting on a white horse and his name is called the Word of God. Aha! So his divine nature is taking over the combined person of Jesus of Nazareth. He's the God-man, but with the emphasis being on his manhood while he was on earth, the emphasis is now there's more of his divine nature coming through. And that's what he's praying for here. Give me some of that that I had before my existence here on earth. And boy, if you read Revelation 19, 11 through 16, you see it. The Lamb is the glory of heaven. Jesus of Nazareth, before he was glorified, did not light up rooms. Do not, do not consider me disrespectful or irreverent. If you think you love the Lord Jesus Christ more than I do, you have another think coming. Do you know what the Bible says about him? He was uncomely. There was no beauty that we would desire him. How about now? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Why don't Catholics want to paint that picture? Catholics want to paint that long-haired, hermaphrodite, John Lennon look-alike hippie standing at a door because that's the only one they want to deal with. They don't want to deal with the one riding on a white horse whose name is the Word of God because he's going to trample their whole kingdom. As we'll see in the second service. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do in verse 4, and now, O Father, because of that, glorify Thou me with thine own self. Notice the divine nature that Jesus has to ask thine own self, give me glory. That would be divine glory. For those that don't think Jesus Christ was God, which I had with thee before the world was in his divine nature. The reason for your existence, my brothers and sisters, the reason you exist today is not for your children. It is not for your spouse. It is not for your pleasure. It is for the glory of God. I have glorified thee on the earth. Let's make sure we glorify him. Wise catechisms of the past had as their first or second question, first for the Presbyterians, second for the Baptists, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God? And to enjoy him forever is the chief end of man. That's why you were created. By living each day correctly, you can approach your own death similarly to our Lord's words here. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Every one of you have work to do. And it's pleasant work. It's win-win work. His commandments are not grievous when we do things his way. 
God has given every one of his children work to do, and it is your duty and privilege to finish it well and to die well, just like Jesus died here, was preparing to die here. Glorify thee, thou me, with thine own self. The Father has no human nature, so the direct reference to him is to his divine glory. Jesus sought for his humanity to be infused with divine glory in a way that it had not been yet on earth. No one could have even looked at him. What did Isaiah do when he saw God in his glory in Isaiah chapter 6? What did Job do when he saw God? When he saw God verbally. I repent in dust and ashes. But God has glorified the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And Jesus is indeed glorified. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that he was crowned with glory and honor. He was promoted. Hebrews 1.4 says, He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than the angels. And what is the name of Jesus in Hebrews 1 that makes him better than all the angels? Son. This is my son. Everyone wants to think of the words, well, theologians want to think of the words, this is my son, this day have I begotten thee, as something happening in eternity. My simplest question for them, though I have a long list, is who was his mother in eternity? The eternal sonship, we reject it. Others want to look at his birth. This day have I begotten thee. But the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 13, in Psalm 2, and in Hebrews 1, that when God said, This day have I begotten thee, refers to his resurrection and ascension into heaven, where he was officially and formally declared to be the Son of God to the universe. Amen. You said, I never figured that out. No, I know you wouldn't have. That's why it's in the Bible three times, because we're slow learners. It is, it is clearly stated, Psalm 2, Acts 13, and Hebrews 1. This is my son. This day have I begotten thee. Today, in heaven, Almighty God said, This is my son, and I promote him over the universe. And he came and took the book of the everlasting covenant out of the hand of God, and God put the rod of iron in his hand to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so we have verse 5. Jesus Christ of the Bible is nothing like the effeminate beggar that Rome has sold to most Christians. Nothing like him. You owe him everything you are, everything you can do to be accepted by him. According to 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, Therefore we labor, whether present or absent, whether we're on earth or we're in heaven, we labor that we might be accepted of him. For we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's the Savior that we have to deal with. He has forgiven our sins, but he expects us to be faithful to him. And the Apostle Paul was, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And that's what we all should do. You are welcome to reason in prayer with God through Jesus Christ, just as he reasoned in prayer. I have glorified thee. I have finished the work. Will you glorify me now? When you glorify God and obey him, you may ask for favor and honor, just like David did in Psalm 18. Remember your position in Christ and your future by him, revealed to the universe as a son of God. See, there's another revelation coming. God said, this is my only begotten son. This day have I begotten thee to Jesus, but he's going to reveal all of us as his sons, over the angels, over the universe, over Satan. We will participate with Jesus Christ in casting the devil himself into the lake of fire. Remember your position and live like it. Act like it. What are you depressed about? You must not be one. There's no reason to be depressed depressed or discouraged. Not when you're a son of God, by predestinated adoption. Verse 6, 
Let's come to the next section of this prayer. Jesus prayed for the apostles from here to verse through verse 19, but we just want to go to verse 10. Jesus prayed for the apostles by God's gift of them to him and by their faith. Verse 6. He shifts completely. I mean, in verse 1, it's him and the Father. In verse 2, it's him and the Father giving eternal life to the elect. In verse 3, it's him and the Father. In verse 4, it's him and the Father. In verse 5, it's him and the Father. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Out of the entire population of planet Earth, you have given me 11 special men. They mean everything to me. And now they need your help. I'm about to leave them, and so truly as a priest, and in by way of intercession, I am coming to thee to help them. They need you. I have manifested thy name. I have told them and showed them your great attributes and your great personal power and your righteousness and your word. These men that you gave me out of the world, thine they were, you're the one that picked them for me. This is reasoning with God in prayer. And remember, we are of the same type in that we've been given to the Father by election, but we are not in verse 6. Don't dream of it. We use the Word of God for what it teaches, not for what we want it to teach. We don't want the sound of words. We want the sense of words. Three times, Jesus is going to say, God gave his disciples, his apostles to him, twice in verse 6, one in verse 9, and he's going to say it again as we move further in verse 11, four times, but that giving of them in verse 2 is election because the result is the gift of eternal life. This giving is not the result. The result of this giving is not the gift of eternal life, but men that are going to remain in this world when Jesus left and go preach the gospel and write it down in epistles. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name. The name of God is more than the letters or syllables of a language. Look at chapter 15 and verse 21 about Jesus himself. John 15, 21. But all these things will they do unto you, speaking about how the apostles would be persecuted, but all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake. Were the apostles going to be punished because the apostles went around using a name, Jesus? Or was there a whole lot more involved in their punishment by them proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth to be God's Messiah? There's much more than just a name. So when you read the word name in a Bible, it's not just talking about pronouncing a few syllables with a few letters. It's talking about what is represented by that name, his attributes, his doctrine, his glory, his word. And so, verse 6, I have manifested thy name. Jesus did manifest the name of God to his apostles. He told them they should pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. He calls him my father, O father, righteous father, and he told them to pray that way, so he did use the name, but then he showed a great deal more about God than just his name. I have manifested thy name. I have shown you to my apostles, the men that you gave me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. I certainly don't want you to be distracted and miss the weight of what Jesus revealed to the apostles about Almighty God as Father, because it was more than a name. When we, in a drama or in history, hear these words, are you confused by them? I order you, in the name of the king, to cease and desist. Are you confused? I order you in these seven consonants and vowels that form two syllables, Edward, six, 
to cease and desist. Are you, are you confused by that? When it says, I order you in the name of the king, what's involved? His authority, your subjection, and what's going to happen if you don't? And, and so much more. His whole government, that a nation is run by a monarchy. Now, what if you're in America and you say that to the children? I order you in the name of the king. Well, we don't have a king, so the order is meaningless. Unless, of course, you identified your husband as the king. And so we get into all these games because we're worrying about the word name. But I have manifested thee to these men. Father, I have shown that thou art the God, the everlasting God, the unknown God, the revealed God through me. I have shown them and told them that I and my Father are one. And they have believed it. So help them. There's two appeals in these verses, five verses, two appeals for God to hear Jesus praying for them. These men are your pick. They're yours. These men have believed about me. Yes, do you have those two credentials? Has God picked you? Are you God's by election? This is not about us but I want to apply it to you to have confidence and understand what the intercessory praying of the Lord Jesus Christ is like. He reasons in prayer. Just like Moses reasoned in prayer. And the two reasons are, you pick them, they're yours, you gave them to me. Will you help them? And they have believed that I came out from thee. And that's what we have here in these verses. And it's powerful. Do you think when Jesus Christ the Son told God the Father, you picked these men, you gave these men to me, I've told them all about you, and they have believed what I told them about you, and they have believed that I came out from thee. That's a lot of evidence. And uh, did the Lord help them? I see the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 as a dramatic fulfillment of this prayer right here. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, as God supplied everything they needed, so they turned the world upside down in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Brethren, have you kept... God the Father's word. Have you kept his doctrine? Do you love his word? Do you obey his word? That is an appeal in prayer. How many times in Psalm 119 did David say, reward me, honor me, quicken me, do this for me, do that for me, according as I have kept thy word. And so Jesus is praying that way. And if we want Jesus praying for us and not against us, we need to add on this second evidence, and that is we have received his word, embraced it, and we obey it. John 17 and verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men, those 11 apostles, which thou gavest me out of the world. Had he manifested himself to you? If he had, I'd like you to explain it to me. I'm trying to point out again that the men under consideration are 11 only, and they are the apostles. Do you know how he's going to manifest himself to you? Through their preaching and their writing. You'll never hear their preaching, but you'll have it written down by Luke, who recorded some of their sermons, and then they wrote epistles to us. Father, let me move on to pray for these men that are standing here with me. They have just heard me pray to you about reciprocal glory between you and me and about the glory I'm looking forward to in heaven, but now I need to pray for them. I've told them about you, and I've shown you to them, and they've believed it. They've kept thy word. I've told them your commandments. I've told them your doctrine. I've shown them that your doctrine is very different from what the scribes and the Pharisees teach. I have preached with all authority, and they have seen the difference. And they have kept thy word. Now, brethren, this is comforting. When you think about the apostles, and I had some very 
dear people to me after preaching through the last five chapters say to me, I had never appreciated the apostles before because they are so pitiful. They're so impulsive. They were so confused. They were so low, little in faith. They were pitiful. And do you know what this person speaking to me? She, oh, that gives away half the congregation. She was right. She's very dear to me. She was right. The apostles were pitiful. But I want you to notice how our intercessor prays for us. Could Asa have a perfect heart with high places left? Could Zechariah and Elizabeth be blameless in all the law of God? In God's view, yes. Because when your heart is right and you're doing all that you can see, he blots out the rest many times. And so he says this about the apostles. They have kept thy word. We read about those apostles failing left and right. But Jesus says they kept thy word. Now, Father, you picked them. They were yours. You gave them to me as a gift. Now, this gift you've given to me, I need help with it. And I've shown them about you, and they've kept thy word. That's verse 6. Verse 7, Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, meaning everything I am and everything I have taught they have known was because of my divine mission from thee, that everything I am, my virgin birth, everything I say, my doctrine, my commandments, my setting aside the scribes and the Pharisees to remind them of your truth, my, my, dude, my deeds, my miracles, the things that I have done, cleansing the temple, driving those money, everything they know is from thee. And so they recognize me as your son with your character sent from you on a divine mission. And this is the gospel. The gospel is not believing that regeneration comes before faith. That is only a small, very small part of it. And we will cover that later today. But the large point that needs to be understood, Jesus of Nazareth is God's son. Everything he said was God's words. Everything he did was God's deeds and works. And he was the virgin born son of God. God was his father. That he came out from God on a divine mission from God. And so Jesus here is telling the father, these men have believed that. These men in verse 7, they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Everything I am, everything I have, everything I say came from you. They see it, they know it, they believe it. Do you? Do you? It should change your life. It should change your life. You don't have any right to anything that you do of your own. This is the God of heaven, your creator, and this is his son, Jesus Christ, and he has told us exactly how we ought to live. And if you're not living that way, you're likely not one of his, or you're a fool. Repent, as you heard from Psalm 32, and be glad. Gladness is a choice. Right. It takes one minute. Repent and be glad. Shout with joy. This person that I'm describing to you and his prayer for them then, for us now, is glorious. The way he reasons with God. Father, these are your elect. They were yours. You gave them me. They have kept your word. They believe that everything I am, everything I said, everything I did was from thee. Help them. And he did. You can count on it. If we didn't have the book of Acts, could you count on it? Absolutely. With a prayer like this from the Lord Jesus Christ to his Father, you could count on it. But we have the book of Acts. And it tells us in detail how God answered this prayer. Verse 7, we've just covered. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. 
They know that everything I am, everything I have taught, everything I have done is because of your charge to me. Verse 8. For I have given unto them the words, see the things he said and taught, I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Do you know how important faith is? Faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. He came out from the Father. The angel to Mary, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Do you believe on the Son of God this morning? It is not merely intellectual comprehension of a set of facts. It is an embracing of him as the Lord of glory and wanting to serve him with your life. Meaning you serve him right now by attending to his words and committing your heart to be a joyful servant of his. He's worthy of it all. It's all about him. And it's all about us conforming our lives to be like him. Verse 8, 4, he's reasoning with his father in prayer, help these 11 men. I'm leaving them, father. He's going to say that shortly. Not yet, but I'm going to leave them. They need you. Help them, strengthen them, glorify them, make them great. They believe in you. They believe in me. They believe your doctrine. They've kept your doctrine and they're sure of it. They're not little penny-wasted, I believe, I don't believe, I'm not sure, I've got questions, even though you and I know that there are some of those recorded in the Gospels, but at this point, Jesus, looking forward, does not see them that way at all. Right. Verse 8, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. Father, the doctrine that you gave me, I have preached to them. The, the commandments that you gave me for them, I have told them, this is what they're supposed to do. And they have received them. Have you received the word of God? What do you, what do you chafe against? What do you push back on? You want to push back on this Savior? You want to push back on this God? What do you push back on? They have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee. When a great crowd of thousands left the Lord Jesus Christ because of his hard doctrine in John chapter 6, Jesus had this response. Then said Jesus unto the twelve. Judas Iscariot is the difference between John 6 and John 17. Jesus asked the twelve, Will ye go away also? Are you all going to desert me? You don't like the doctrine from my father? That except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you? That's a little too hard for you? You want a praise band instead? You want to hear about regeneration before faith instead? You don't want to embrace me and eat my flesh and drink my blood? Will ye go away also? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe. As their leader, he said, And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. That ought to give you goosebumps for Peter making such a strong declaration. To whom shall we go? There is no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that prophesied Christ, Messiah of the Old Testament, the Son of the living God. John 17. So when we look at verse 8 in this prayer of Jesus reasoning like a priest with his Father, with God, I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee. 
They knew he was the Son of God and believed it surely, and they have believed that thou didst send me, that I have been on a divine mission here. They do not believe that I have come of my own. Believed, they don't believe that I preach of my own. I am here because of you sending me, and I am here with your doctrine. Verse 9, I pray for them. I pray for them. Don't run further in the verse. Don't abuse this verse. It's been abused enough. This is not a verse about election. This is a verse about apostolic, uh, apostleship. Not election. Apostleship. I pray for them. Do you understand the use of a colon? Do you understand the four pauses in the English language? Of a period, a comma, and I'm not putting them in order for your benefit. A period and a comma, a semicolon and a colon. Do you understand that one gets the rest of one? One gets the rest of two, two beats. One gets three and one gets four. What gets four? It's a period. But a colon is next. A colon stops thought. You say you believe in the colons in the Bible? Why shouldn't I? Where do you draw the line? I draw it in a circle right here. All the way around it. I ain't going to draw a line in the middle of it. We know what's inspired and what isn't inspired. I don't need the epistle dedicatory to King James, though we're going to look at it in just a little while. I don't need it because it's not inspired. Are you with me about verse 9? I pray for them. Notice, verses 1 through 5 were between Jesus and his Father, back and forth for reciprocal glory. Verse 6 is a transition. I'm praying for the men that you gave me. And so he's mentioned several things about them in verses 6 through 8. You gave me these men of the world. Remember, you gave them to me. They're yours. You gave them to me as a gift. They've believed everything that I've taught. They believe the things I've told them that they need to do. They believe your word. They've believed and are sure about these things. And they've kept your word, Father. I pray for them. Right. You're in trouble. Health, family, whatever. You get a note in the mail, a text. You get a note in the mail or a text. A note in the mail is not a text. I'm praying for you. Do they really need to say much else? Is it meaningful? I'm praying for you. There are 11 troubled, terrified, fearful, confused men standing in a circle around the Lord Jesus Christ in the stillness of a dark night. He has lifted up his eyes to heaven and entered into another world. And whether they're cheating and looking at him or whether they have their heads bowed and their eyes closed, the Bible doesn't tell us you don't have to bow your head and close your eyes to pray. Right. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and he entered into the Holy of Holies. And they, were, they are standing there dumbfounded, as we should be, reading this chapter. And he starts off with reciprocal glory and authority, the likes of which they have never heard about, in a man standing with them. Verses 1 through 5. Give me the glory that I had with you before the world was. What? Father, these men that are standing here with me, you gave them to me. I have manifested thy name to them. I have showed thee to them. I have given them your words, and they have received them. They've believed them. They've kept your words. They've believed that I came out from thee. I pray for them. I pray for them. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. I'm not praying for anyone else. I pray for them. Why do you want to push the word world around in this verse unless you're going to push it around in verse 6? I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Did he give them men out of the world of reprobates? Did he give him men out of the world of elect? Does it even matter? No one else matters at this point in the prayer. 
from verse 6 through verse 19, it is about the apostles. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world. That is the apostles. He was never with you in the world. It's the apostles. While I was with them in verse 12. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Verse 18 says that. That's the apostles. And then verse 20 gets the rest of us who have been converted since the apostles wrote the New Testament. But I'm at verse 9. I pray for them. Father, I pray for them. These men that you've given me that are standing right here that have done so well with my manifestation of thee to them and thy words to them, they've known that I came out from thee. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. He has already said that up in verse 6 and 7. They're yours. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, these special 11 men, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am glorified in these 11 men. Now he has said, I have glorified thee on the earth, speaking of future work. Correct? I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, speaking of future work. They have glorified me. In verse 10, I am glorified in them. He hadn't been much so far glorified by those 11 men because they were so fearful, but would he be glorified in them? Oh, yes. In the chapters following Acts chapter 2, the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified in those 11 men as they turn the world upside down with the gospel. This is the first section of his prayer for the apostles, and we've just covered it. His reasoning is, Father, these men that are with me, I'm about to leave them. You gave them to me. They were your pick. They're your men. Now they're my men, because all my men are your men, and all your men are my men, because we have absolute joint property. Because my father and I are one. We are one in purpose. We are one in calling. We are one in commission. We are one in property. We both own them. They're, they're both of ours. You picked them. You gave them to me. Everything you've taught me, I've preached. Everything you've told me to do, I've done. The men you gave me, which are your men, they're my men. And you know, for this part, it's apostles. But you know from verse 20, all these things are true of us. Not in apostleship, but in salvation and in how we ought to live our lives. Amen. We're owned by God. We're owned by Christ. All that are gods are Christ. All that are Christ are gods. And we all should be one in the Lord Jesus Christ. There shouldn't be division. There shouldn't be problems. There shouldn't be enmity. There shouldn't be adversaries. We're all one. And we should live as one. Worship as one. Agree as one. Teach, obey, and do as one. That's what's going to come in the verses that follow. But what a prayer. I wish that when you read the word of God, you'd slow down enough. I believe in slower reading programs than faster reading programs so that you can slow down enough like at verse 9 instead of ripping through it and thinking that it is some statement about election. So many people have abused John 17, 9 that Jesus prays for the elect and doesn't pray for reprobates. But that's not his point. That's not the context. And it's really quite irrelevant. We all know that. What is, what is meaningful here? As he's just moments from being arrested. These men that you gave me, they've kept your word. They've known that I came out from thee. I've manifested thee to them. They've received it. They've believed it. I pray for them. Amen. All you should need is those four words. You like a text, I'm praying for you, from someone that we don't even know if their prayers break the, the flat paint on the ceiling. I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, when Jesus says, I pray for you, it's a little different. Right, right. That's all I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to run down anyone's prayers. I just want you to appreciate these words. I pray for them. His eyes are 
into the Holy of Holies. These men that you gave me, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for these men that you gave me, for, for all that are thine are mine, and all mine are thine, and I am glorified in them. If you'll help them and bless them, I know what they're going to do for me. Amen. And they did it for him. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Are you going to glorify him on the earth? How are you glorifying him on the earth? Are you going to finish the work that he gave you to do? We all have work to do. And I'm not talking about signing up after this service to be a missionary in some dark corner of the earth. I'm talking about all the things we have lined up for us to do at home, with this church, with our government, with our neighbors, with our children, with our parents. We have a lot to do. But it's it's win-win because doing it his way brings his blessings upon us. His commandments are not grievous. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and this high priestly intercessory prayer of Jesus our Lord to the Father in heaven, first for the apostles, then for us. Amen. Amen.